0: The
1: History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are
0: fashion historians and your hosts, Cassie Zachary and April Callahan. Dress listeners, welcome to part two of our two-part episode on one of my favorite all-time designers. And Cass, I am apparently not alone in this sentiment. Claire McCardell has been called the designer's designer as her work remains adored by top contemporary designers, even today. American designers, including Isaac Mizrahi, Cynthia Rowley, Norma Kamali, and Anna Sui have all been very vocal in the press about their admiration for McCardell's work. And in an article from the New York Times in 1998, Sui called McArdle's clothes, quote, a revelation, adding that, quote, what I truly appreciate was her fabric sensibility. Even with more constructed fabrics like denim, she made them look so soft and drapey. The thing is, you look at some of the things she did and you can't believe it was the 1940s.
1: You really can't. So innovative and ahead of their time. And this is perhaps why McCardle is the direct inspiration for Tory Burch's Spring-Summer 2022 line. Talking about this collection, Birch says, quote, I was in a class on women in history and I was blown away by her fearlessness. She was such an innovator and completely broke the mold. She went against everything that was happening in fashion throughout the 40s and 50s. And it goes without saying that American sportswear is the way it is because of her.
0: Indeed. And Cass, that birch collection, I have to say, is really wonderful. Um, you can see the homage to McCardle in its fresh simplicity and her fabric choices for sure. And earlier this week, we covered McArdle's early career and some of the key elements of her design philosophy. That would be in part one of this two-part episode. So if you haven't already given that a listen, you might want to do so before moving forward with this one, uh, where we are going to pick up with Claire's work during World War II.
1: Yeah, and last episode we left off around 1940 when Claire had rejoined the newly reformed Townley Frocks as their head designer. And this time, as you may remember, dress listeners, she had increased creative license that came on the heels of the success of her monastic dress of 1938. The monastic dress was a smash hit and was so widely copied that Townley was forced into bankruptcy, which is just crazy, because of their legal battles attempting to enforce their ownership of the design. So a notorious fashion success turned debacle, which we covered in part one. (laughs) And with her newfound design freedoms, Claire really flourished at Townley and expanded their offerings beyond dresses to nearly every aspect of a woman's wardrobe.
0: Yeah, and every once in a while, she did some things for the gents too, so we, we would like to point that out, but it was mainly women's wear that she was doing. And she diversified their women's wear offerings into separates, play clothes, swimwear, outerwear and even evening wear, and in doing so, Claire tripled Townley's business in just three years. And this feat was even more remarkable given the fact that for a portion of this time, the American fashion industry was shifting its operations with a close eye on the war that was happening in Europe the U.S. had begun providing resources to the Allies in September of 1940, reducing the fashion industry's access to certain types of materials. And while the U.S. didn't enter the fray of World War II until December of 1941, and the L-85 restrictions, which officially rationed the materials used in clothing, were not implemented by the War Production Board until 1943, as early as 1941, American designers were being called upon to adapt to new circumstances and new ways of working. And Claire adopted amazingly
1: well, so much so that she was awarded an American Fashion Critics Award in 1942 for her, quote, outstanding interpretation of fashion trends under the restrictive influences of 1941. And her affinity for so-called humble fabrics, so calicos, ginghams, denims, simple plain weave, cottons, and linens had, of course, been established in the pre-war years, and this served her well during the war. American designer Norman Norell, who worked more in the lines of the French couture tradition, um, he actually expressed his admiration for Claire's talent with textiles, and he noted that she could, quote, take $5 worth of common cotton calico and turn out a dress as smart women could wear anywhere.
0: Claire really played to her talents as the war waged. Biographer Kola Johannan notes that when the LED Five restrictions, which ration materials like wool and leather were imposed— Claire came up with creative solutions. She ordered, quote, truckloads of surplus fabrics, including weather balloon cottons, butchers' apron linens, and rayons, which were more or less not subject to L85 rationing. She also continued her practice of buying remnants from textile mills, which had long garnered her favorite status in the textile industry. You know, Cass, Claire was a visionary in not only her unique design lexicon— but also a pioneer in sustainability at a time when sustainability was not part of fashion's discourse. And she was doing all of this vis-a-vis mass production.
1: And during these early war years, Claire actually launched several of her most enduring designs. So we have her kitchen dinner dress, which she launched in 1941, which really catered to home hostesses' needs for a certain culinary chic, have you? So they really (laughs) served this dual functionality so it could be worn while sitting to dine at the well-appointed table, for instance. But it also served purposes in the kitchen, uh, putting, you know, for a woman putting the final touches on an elegant meal. And in Claire's own words, quote, most of my ideas come from trying to solve my own problems. I like to be able to zip my own zippers and hook my own eyes. I need a dress that can cook a dinner and then come out and meet the guests. (laughs) I love that.
0: Yep, doing it all. The kitchen dinner dress was the precursor to what is arguably McArdle's most famous design, the popover dress. Patented in 1942, Claire says the, quote, popover started as a wartime victory garden cover-up. Moved into the house when servantless living arrived, it played its role as a dress, coat, beach wrap, or hostess dress. It went over everything from evening clothes to dungarees. It can be worn as a bathrobe or a quick something in which to answer the doorbell. The victory of this basic dress is this kind of versatility. It can be anything. And everything, provided you make it a fashion of your own.
1: And the success of the popover was such that it was offered year after year throughout the 1940s and 50s. Its silhouette, you know, morphed over time. It adapted somewhat to the year or the season. But really, at its core, it remained this all-purpose garment. And actually, many museums hold examples of the original version of the popover from 1942. It's a very, very iconic design. It came in denim, and it had a collared neckline and a wide three-quarter length sleeve. And the bodice of the dress wrapped at the front, then it fastened with buttons at the side and waistline. And on one hip is a large patch pocket, which held the attached, weight for it, red cotton oven mitt that came as part of the ensemble. (laughs) And the pocket is actually generous enough that it could also serve as a repository of garden tools while working outdoors. It served any number of purposes. And, you know, us women love our pockets. Mm -hmm. Um, And Indoors and Outdoors, the original popover was basically conceived as a whimsical coverall dress to protect the other clothes you wore below.
0: Women across America purchased the popover dress in droves. Priced at $6.95 at the time, that's $6.95, or what would be about $120 today, Claire had learned her lesson following the unfettered plagiarism of her monastic dress. And as I noted earlier, Claire had patented the dress in late 1942, and she did so for a very good reason. Uh, For three and a half years, it was protected as her own design, but Claire didn't necessarily count on that. So she took things one step further in anticipation of unauthorized adaptations of her design. And get this, she knocked herself off, which is fascinating. (laughs) I love this idea so much. It really shows what a shrewd businesswoman she was, Basically, she knew that the patent didn't necessarily guarantee that other manufacturers weren't going to copy her. So what she did was she flooded the market with her own adaptations of the popover dress. She sold them to different retailers under different names and at cheaper price points. So she was definitely playing the game at this point. Oh, for sure. And
1: she really continued to Do so. I mean, Claire really recognized the design's infinitely mutable possibilities, and encouraged women to make the popover their own. And there's this wonderful little anecdote from her autobiography, What Shall I Wear, which was published in 1956. And it goes as this quote: "One of my Greenwich Village friends tells me that every authoress she knows writes in a popover." And just as each talented lady has her own writing style, each undoubtedly has her own way of looking in her popover. Perhaps she ties a sash with streamers in the back or knots it at one side or winds it around and pins it with a jewel to make a girdled midriff. She may even, working on a hot summer day, wear it nightgown style with sash untied for cool comfort.
0: And I'm really glad that you brought up the subject of her autobiography, Cass. A little side note on that, Years ago, when I first read What Shall I Wear, I was very excited because I'm such a big McCardle fan. And I have to say that after I read it, I was hella confused. <laughs> um, why, you might be wondering. Well, that's because knowing Claire's work like I did and then reading the book, the book and her design work, they seemed at odds with each other. You know, her, her design work didn't exactly jive with the written words that were coming off the page the book is largely advice to women on how to dress specifically in the context of the 1950s. So there's a lot of discussion on dressing to please your husband, you know, exactly how many pairs of gloves that you should own and what shade and where they should be worn, and a whole lot of other advice that I would assume Claire probably gave very little credence to. So just saying.
1: Yeah. And I mean, and maybe it makes a lot more sense, April, after you learned that the book was heavily ghostwritten. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, even the McArdle family has acknowledged that the book isn't really reflective of Claire's personal views and that Townley Frox was invested in its success. So they hired a ghostwriter. And our listeners will remember from part one that academic pursuits were not necessarily Claire's strong suit. So maybe she just wasn't interested in pinning her own autobiography. What was okay with it being pinned under her name? I don't
0: know. Yeah. I also found out that the ghostwriter, whose name was Edith Heal, was also working on another fashion advice book for housewives at the same time while she was working on the McArdle title, so I'm guessing kind of what happened here is some of this tone kind of like wormed its way into the McArdle book as well. And it's it's difficult to say how involved or what level of approval Claire had over the final work. But as one member of the McArdle family has stated, quote, Claire was a feminist long before we even had a word for them. And in the context of the clothes and the book together, it just— doesn't ring true to me you know her being a feminist and some of the things that are in the book the clothes do but not the autobiography so dress listeners if you do read uh, what shall I wear just a word of caution in my personal opinion I don't take it as the bible of Claire McCardle's thoughts and views I kind of personally approach it with with cautious interest I would say <laughs> and with that small caveat we should probably take a break
1: for a brief word from our sponsors Welcome back dress listeners. So besides the monastic and popover dresses, Claire McArdle is also known for her particular take on swimwear. In 1943, she launched her so-called diaper suit, a one piece with an unusual design construction wherein the wearer passed the panel which covered the derriere between the legs to the front, if that makes sense. So this was then secured by way of ties around the waist. And the construction was actually ingenious. It allowed adopters to shape the suit to their individual figures, which we all love. And covering the chest completely, the neckline of the suit gently cupped the base of the neck and tied with this delicate spaghetti string at its nape.
0: Claire's vision for sleek felt swimwear that was intended for swimming, as active women actually practice swimming, was forward thinking and deemed even a bit radical at the time. Mainstream swimwear of the late 40s and into the 1950s often relied on decorative flounces, skirts, and other embellishments that Claire simply could not abide. She once cheekily declared that she was, quote, afraid that little girls' dresses worn as bathing suits suggest regression. Swimsuits are for swimming. If it's a dress you want, I have that too. So Claire's swimsuits lacked the heavy Padding typically used
1: in swimmer at the time, and in the words of fashion historian Valerie Steele, quote, McArdle's bathing suits look particularly modern. They rely on clean, bold lines and unexpected shapes such as a halter top or wrapped diaper bottom. In contrast to the shiny, colorful LazTech Tech bathing suits coming out of California, McArdle used plain black or beige wool jersey.
0: And while her use of wool for swimwear might feel a little jarring to us today, we have talked about this on the show before, so some of you are probably familiar with this practice at the time. You know, McCardle staked her reputation on the fact that her suits held their shape better when wet than the fabrics used by other manufacturers, and that the natural wool fibers dried several times faster once out of the water. You know, given the fact that McCardle was a design genius, Kind of inclined to believe her here. Textile science 75 years ago wasn't what it is today. So I'm guessing she knew what she was doing.
1: Yeah, for sure. And McCardle's daring earned her legions of fans, among them Hollywood actresses Rita Hayworth, Rosalind Russell, Catherine Hepburn, socialite and fashion icon Babe Paley, was a devotee, as was Lauren Bacall, uh, who during her early career actually served as a model for McArdle. Mm-hmm.
0: And this is not to say that McArdle catered exclusively to the elite, rich, and famous. Quite the opposite, in fact. In her words, quote, I belong to a mass production company where any of us, all of us, deserve the right to good fashion and where fashion must be made available to all. Feminist activist
1: and author Betty Friedan once described McArdle as, quote, the girl who defied Dior. But the truth of the matter is, in many ways, McArdle actually preceded Dior, which is not a narrative we are used to hearing these days. So Claire actually predicted fashion's post-war future several years before Dior's launch of the new look in 1947. In an article entitled Wardrobe Futures, published in the Washington Star in 1945, Claire is quoted as saying, quote, Skirts are going to be longer and fuller. Shoulders are going to get rounder. After you've been in the fashion game long enough, you can see a trend looming long before it is launched. I showed round shoulders five years ago. As for full skirts, mine have been as full as could be from the beginning. And that is very, very true as we've talked about.
0: And she really had been doing this years before Dior. You know, as she pointed out herself, she was doing nipped waist, full skirts. She was doing those sloped shoulders. But she was doing it in this uniquely American vernacular that prized quiet comfort over opulence, which clearly distinguishes her from the likes of Dior and his contemporaries. Model Susie Parker once quite humorously called McArdle's work, quote, refreshingly unfrench," <laughs> <laughs> And apparently it was this unfrenchness which drew Hollywood starlets and suburban housewives alike to come worship at the quote-unquote temple of Claire McArdle. Which we're still worshiping at today, aren't we? We are.
1: Claire's mass appeal did not go unnoticed by marketing executives looking to capitalize on the female consumer. And her clothes appeared in endorsements for Clairol beauty products and a surprising amount of automobile abs. So... Chevrolet, Chrysler, all paid McArdle for the use of her clothes in their advertising and sometimes also an endorsement of their vehicles. And Claire was not the only designer the auto industry courted. During the 40s and 50s, fashion was really seen as an entry point into the female consumer base who, you know, had a lot of power. And lots of automobile companies placed ads in fashion and ladies' magazines that sought to influence the purchasing power of women by way of a well-placed fashionable frock.
0: Many of these endorsement deals were probably thanks to the work of McArdle's publicist extraordinaire, Eleanor Lambert. This name is probably familiar to many of our listeners, as we have mentioned her several times on the show previously, and she is also the subject of her own episode. A seminal figure in the history of American fashion, working behind the scenes, Lambert pulled the strings for decades, working as a fashion publicist, while. Well, all the while bolstering the industry and creating what later became New York Fashion Week. She created the American Fashion Critics Awards and also the CFDA among her many other endeavors. Which is, of course, the Council of Fashion Designers of America. Yes, Um, yes. So Lambert
1: was without a doubt one of, if not the most powerful people in fashion, not just in the United States, but internationally as well. She was incredibly well-known and loved. She was the business which is also probably why she saw to it that McCardle appeared on television shows, radio programs, crisscrossed the country for in-person speaking engagements. McCardle um, didn't seem to mind the lecture circuit. Uh, she felt engaging with the women of America helped her keep the pulse on their needs and desires, which was really critical in
0: keeping her work relevant. With McCardle's increasing public notoriety came not only endorsement opportunities but also licensing deals. Inked were contracts with other manufacturers to produce Clara McArdle-branded sunglasses, gloves, and costume jewelry. She was a big fan of costume jewelry cast. She said that she didn't really wear fine jewelry. Uh, McArdle also worked with paper pattern companies, including Spada, to make her patterns available to home sewers. And apparently, at one point, there was even a Clara McArdle perfume in the works, which was going to be called White Sash. But it seems that this never actually came to fruition. So do you know if the paper
1: patterns are still things that people can get their hands on if they want to yes. create? Oh, yes. very fun. Well, there you go. That's that's your entry-level, Claire McCardell. trust listeners. You can create your own. <laughs> I, I looked the other day. There's some up for sale on Etsy and on eBay. Oh, wonderful. So at Townley, Claire's designs were made available to younger fans as well. A junior line was added into their offerings, as was one for infants called Baby McArdle, which is about the most freaking adorable thing we've ever heard. That's so cute. I want one for Leo. Um, Extant examples are exceedingly rare, however. So if you do fund one, Snap It Up dress listeners, there is a market for them.
0: Well, funny that you should say that, Cass, that you want one for Leo, because... (laughs) Dress listeners, I have not told Cassidy this yet. What I have told Cassidy is that I haven't bought her a baby gift and that I was waiting till I found the perfect thing because I needed it to be supremely special. Aww. Well, let's just say Leo has a baby McArdle on the Shut way. Up. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I hope that he enjoys his pale blue corduroy jumpsuit.
1: Stop it. Oh, my God. I guess you will be getting a photo of Leo after all dress listeners in this
0: outfit. I told you that I, I would know it as soon as I found it, and I found it. Oh, my so. gosh.
1: This is very exciting. I cannot wait. Thank you so much. You're welcome.
0: So, back to McCardle, With all of these successes of the late 40s and early 1950s, well— it quite literally paid off for Claire in 1952 when Townley made her a partner in the business. And her contributions to American fashion at large were acknowledged by her peers around the same time when she was elected as the chairperson of the industry organization, The Fashion Group. She was also elected as a board member or asked to be a board member at the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And perhaps most publicly, in May of 1955, she became one of only a handful of fashion designers to ever grace the cover of Time Magazine, an honor previously awarded to Elsa Scaparelli, Christian Dior, and American designer, Sophie Gimbel.
1: To say that McArdle was at the pinnacle of her career in the mid-1950s is really an understatement. And that's what makes her diagnosis of cancer in 1957 all the more devastating. Stanley Marcus, who's the owner of Neiman Marcus Department Stores, once described Claire as, quote, the master of the line, never a slave to the sequins, one of the few truly creative designers this country has ever produced.
0: And... Part of this reason that she was one of these truly creative designers was because Claire started her process thinking of the lifestyle and the needs of the women that she designed for. She believed, quote, American women are the most beautiful and best proportioned in the world. They have fine legs, good feet, healthy color, shining hair. They are not hard to dress. They have a posture all their own, a comfortable, easy, casual way of moving. Their walk is swinging, not mincing, in tune with all the places they are always off to. A job, the golf links, the market, the club. I have tried to express all of this in my clothes, and I think that even the high priests of fashion are beginning to believe that fashion can give something individual to American women.
1: And give is exactly what Claire did until the very end of her life. Undergoing extensive treatments following her cancer diagnosis in late 1957, Claire actually refused to stop working. Uh, her biographer, Cole Yahanin notes one hospitalization where she called a limo to pick her up. She snuck out from under the watch of the hospital staff and went directly to her studio to work. During other hospital stints, Claire worked from her bed against the advice of her team of doctors. And at another point, Adolph Klein of Townley realized that Claire's stubborn refusal to rest was not going to go away. And he actually called in Claire's lifelong friend, fellow fashion designer, Mildred Oric, to come to assist her.
0: Yes. Dress listeners, remember in part one where we said to remember Mildred's name, she was there until the very end for Claire helping her finish her final collection, which was shown in January of 1958. Once again, Claire slipped out of the hospital to attend its presentation at the Pierre Hotel in New York City. Many of the industry professionals there in attendance were aware of Claire's illness, and the show ended with an incredibly heartwarming standing ovation, not just for the 1958 collection, but for an entire career of unprecedented creativity that had literally reshaped the face of American fashion.
1: And Claire returned to the hospital the same evening. She was exceedingly ill. There she would largely remain until her passing just a few months later on March 22nd, 1958. So obviously far too soon. She was just 52 years old. And just think what McArdle could have accomplished had she been given another few decades. I mean, that really hangs as a question mark both then and now. Following the designer's passing, tributes flowed like tears from the pages of the American fashion press. Vogue lauded her, quote, profound sophistication based on respect for the natural, enduring proof that the natural need not be confused with the naive.
0: While well, Harper's Bazaar opined, quote, for innumerable women all across America who want to dress with delicacy, dash and a flavor indigenous to their heritage, McCardle's clothes have been the best of all possible answers. End quote. And perhaps they still are cast. You know, her legacy is represented in a very weiral way in that recent Tory Birch collection, which we mentioned at the top of the episode. The company has gone a step further in their tribute to McCardle by establishing the Tory Birch Claire McCardle Fashion Fellowship at the Maryland Center of History and Culture in McClare's home state. So um, I just want to point out that we are not being paid by Tori Birch to talk about this collection, but it <laughs> is actually really well done. You know, it underscores the lasting mark left by McArdle on American fashion a full hundred years after she she started fashion design school, you know. And hey, Tory Birch team, if you, if you want to send us some of those leftover pieces from the McArdle collection, I wouldn't be <laughs> mad at it. And, yeah, and
1: Claire's <laughs> legacy is going to live on now on little Leo, who will be beginning his like old fashionable journey, apparently, with his first piece of designer clothing. So thank you, <laughs> April. Yeah. Um, so with that, dress listeners, we will sign off for today. May you consider any McCartellisms residing in your wardrobe next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you, so if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at, dress at iHeartMedia.com. and also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which we will be posting a fun reel on Claire McArdle this week.
0: Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each and every week. More dress coming your way next week. Dressed.